Kolov hammering away on the midsection. Of Bruno Sammartino kicking him into the midsection now. Kolo pulls him out, has him in the air. Big body slam. Here's a cover. One, two. And Sammartino still able to kick out. Now Kolov going for the slam. Again. And again, just a count of two. Sammartino with Ivan Kolov up in the air, and I mean he really slammed him. Again, how's him up there? Huh. Could be over. Count of two again. Nip and tuck all the way. However, Ivan Kolov rolled off the apron of the ring and is now, as you see, on the outside of the ring. Apparently trying to catch him. Oh, now it's Samartino who will not let Ivan Kolov in. Again, San Martino comes over. So, Bruno San Martino giving Ivan Kolov a little. Wait a minute, they're both out there. Look up! Ivan Kolov picked up a chair while on the outside of the ring and leveled Bruno San Martino. Hello everyone, and welcome to Season 4 of Grappling with Canada. As usual, I'm your host, The Taxman. I hope that everybody had a very safe, but more importantly, a very fun holiday season, and I'm looking forward to a tremendous fourth season of the Grappling with Canada podcast. If this is your first time to the program, welcome. You can find past episodes in the podcast platform that you are currently listening to this program on, whether that's iTunes, RSS, Spotify, wherever you buy, sell, trade, barter, or seal your favorite podcast, you'll find Grappling with Canada in the aforementioned back catalog. There are tremendous episodes on previous subject matters, such as Stu Hart and Stampede Wrestling. Dino Bravo, George Gordienko, Bruiser Bob Sweeten, and many more. So feel free to check those out after you listen to this program, of course. Also, while you're here, if you wouldn't mind hitting that follow or subscribe button, that would mean a great deal to me. You can also find this podcast on YouTube. Simply use that wonderful YouTube search bar and search for Grappling with Canada. You will find this program. Also want to make mention quickly that you can find Grapple with Canada on all major social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or X, whatever they call it now. Simply search for Grappling with Canada, and I hope that you will also join us in the Canadian Professional History Facebook group. There's been a lot of tremendous postings in there, so come along and join us in the Canadian Professional Wrestling History Facebook group. You can find links to all this information in the Linktree link in today's show notes.
Now, the reason we're all here today, we're going to be having a tremendous conversation regarding somebody who, in my opinion, it's an absolute shame and travesty for them not to be included in WWE's Hall of Fame. And yes, we will be getting into the validity of said Hall of Fame, but that's a topic for a little bit later in tonight's conversation. But somebody who should be in there nonetheless, for a plethora of reasons, is the incredible Ivan Koloff. Tonight, I'm very pleased to be joined by two amazing guests who are really going to set the stage, not just for Ivan Koloff, the wrestler, but Ivan Koloff, the person, and how he really shaped people's, we'll say, feelings towards professional wrestling. We're going to get into a lot of that later with my two tremendous guests. We have Benny Scala. You may have heard of him from a plethora of podcasts that he's been on, as well as his tremendous articles in ProWrestlingStories.com. Also joined to the program is longtime friend and good friend of the show, reoccurring guest, Evan Ginsberg. Now, these two gentlemen are going to be providing tremendous insight, not only not only into what Ivan Koloff meant to the WWF, but also wrestling in general, and just the absolute cultural icon that he was during his major runs, and also some, let's say, lesser-known runs that are equally as impressive. I'm really looking forward to getting into that in just a few minutes. But I think the best way to do this, as we normally do on Grapple with Canada, is to kick this program off with some classic wrestling audio. So please enjoy the abusive stylings, if you will. Ivan Koloff getting into a little bit of trouble with Pat Patterson. Please enjoy. Well, I tell you, uh, one thing that, to me, what he does all the time is always puts down American wrestling. He is superior, he is better. All right, well, we'll return, ladies and gentlemen, as we continue with the next matchup. Ivan Koloff on his way back to the dressing room with another victory chucked under his belt. Ivan Koloff obviously wanting to have an interview. Mr. Patterson, I think you're being summoned, if you would. Well, he must have something very important to say. All right. We'll go now. If we can set up an interview. Scott Patterson on his way down now to, to see what Ivan Koloff is, has on his mind. All right, let's go now to Pat Platter. Koloff, obviously, you have something very important to say. Why don't you say what you have to say? Because every time I have statements about you, I have film on you about saying things about Koloff that are all lies. And I don't like this one bit. You accuse Koloff of breaking rules, using foreign object in ring to gain victory. You are degrading Koloff all the time. I don't like this. I think you are nothing, Patterson, but a dirty, slimy, filthy, American, prejudiced pig. You understand? Listen to me, Koloff. When I commentate on your match, I don't lie. I tell the truth. I've always said, I've always praised you that you're a great wrestler. You're a former world champion. But all you do is degrade the American wrestler. I think American wrestler is just as great as you are. I tell you what, Patterson. I'm not a liar, and the American people know who the liar is. You bald-headed get over here. 
Koloff. Patterson. Round in ring. My goodness. Koloff gave him a shot. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Pat Patterson. Well, this commentary, and he is furious. Patterson is If you're familiar with previous episodes of Grappling with Canada, you'll note that during the start of every episode, I normally go into a deep dive into the individual's personal and private background to give more context for later conversations in that episode. I'm thinking specifically, you know, episodes such as Chief Don Eagle, where his background story is let's just say not very accurate in most media or somebody like Jack Taylor whose background story was essentially lost to time until uncovered by some tremendous research but this episode's a little bit different the background information on Ivan Koloff actually comes up just in casual conversation with my two guests that you're going to hear in just a little bit Evan Ginsberg and Benny Scala so not that it's not important to cover the background of Ivan Koloff, trust me it is, and it's very impressive, uh, as you're going to find out very shortly. But it, not only does it come up in a conversation with both of them, but it's also covered extensively by Ivan Koloff himself, with the two books that he wrote on him, or I guess co-wrote on himself, uh, Is That Wrestling Fake? The Bare Facts, as well as life in the trenches where he was in both of them uh, very straightforward with his personal life his life before wrestling but more importantly his life after wrestling and that's something that we're going to really be spending quite a bit of time on in the context of this episode because as much as i want fans who maybe are unfamiliar with ivan koloff to uh, research and respect the wrestler I also want people to respect the man, and I think you will at the end of the conversations that you're going to hear today. Now, without further ado, we're going to be jumping right into my conversation with Benny Scala. Now, I have to apologize. You're going to hear some interesting audio in that episode, mostly from me. And unfortunately, during the course of recording that episode or that portion of the program, I should say, I had a terrible case of bronchitis. So the cough button was uh, activated many, 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 many times. But Benny was a great guest. He was a, a real treat to have on the program. And again, we had just a, such a great free-flowing conversation that really encapsulates the story of Ivan Koloff, not just from a fan's perspective, but also somebody who's looking at things from a historical mind and somebody who's looking at things as a nowadays fan, if you will. I think that's probably the best way to say it. So, before we get to that, I will play some more classic audio. And on the other side, my conversation with Benny Scala. Please enjoy. In just a moment, we will see Nikita Kolov in the ring and Ivan is 
with us here at ringside to talk about that match. Nikita Koloff, he is an awesome force, but we're talking about the world heavyweight champion. He's the best in all the world. Well, you are going to see in a few seconds here why Ric Flair has been avoiding Nikita Koloff. Why Ric Flair, every time he hears the name Nikita Koloff, he gets chills all over. Why Ric Flair is very reluctant to sign any contract whenever Nick Nikita Koloff's name is mentioned. Why? Because he knows Nikita Koloff has more power than he has, has more wrestling ability than this Ric Flair. And he knows, Ric Flair, that it's just a matter of time before Nikita Koloff would destroy him and take world title away from him. Let's go to the ring. And there he goes. You see, Nikita, he doesn't waste any time. This goes after his opponent, demolish him. You see, Ric Flair, you don't have a chance. You may as well stay back in the shadow. Talk to it. Oh, Ric Flair's here. I'm in downstairs, and I'm sick and tired of you running your mouth. Come here, Koloff. Tell you right now. Get out of the way, Tony. I'm sick and tired of you running your mouth. Nikita Koloff don't mean nothing to me. You don't mean nothing. This is America. We do what we want to do. We want to get dressed up pretty. We get dressed up pretty. We want to wear blue jeans. We wear blue jeans. We want to go out and go look at women. We go out and go look at women. This is America. Well, man of the year, Rick Flair, we're not afraid of you. Of the you're going Take to find out that you're not man enough for Nikita Koloff, my nephew. You know, I made that comment a couple weeks ago that I just might make him my personal gardener. I'm looking for a chauffeur. And if you want a job driving my car around, you are hired right now. Don't you insult me, Rick Flair. No, Don't you insult the name of Koloff. Right you got you a problem. You want to get this resolved. Why don't you and I come over here right now, huh? You want to get this resolved? Come on, big man. You want to get this resolved? Come on, Come on. My goodness. Nikita Koloff from behind, David. He got the champion from behind. And now he is ripping off his... He's ripping off that suit of his. Oh, my goodness. He's ripping his clothes right off. All righty. So, uh, Benny Scala, um, 68 years old, became a fan. So, it's, a, it's kind of a little bit of a long story, but I remember it was either 1966 or 1967. Uh, we had, it was one, back then you had one TV in the, fa- in, in the family. And I remember, uh, walking into the living room on a Saturday, and for whatever reason, professional wrestling was on, which was never on in my house. But at that precise moment, serendipity ray morgan was inter- interviewing bruno san martino and so i i just for i just got transfixed like who is this guy i mean bruno looked like a superman to me i mean i'm, I'm 12 11 12 years old and you know at the end of every interview ray morgan would always ask bruno hey bruno how about saying a word for uh it, it, you know for your italian fans and of course both of my parents uh spoke fluent italian my mom happened when mom was old she was always in the kitchen that's what italian mothers did you know, 24-7. I said, Mom, Mom, come here. And she actually translated what Bruno said. And she says, man, that guy is very classy. Because he was just thanking his fans for all the support. You know, typical Bruno stuff. And so, I, I, you know, I really didn't give it a second thought. But uh, the Christmas of 1967, because I was a huge sports fan. I, I watched, I mean, baseball, basketball, foot. I mean, I was a four-sport four, uh, guy 
you know, and I would hog the family TV set. And I guess my parents got tired of that. And I got a 12 inch Hitachi TV, black and white for my, for Christmas 1967. So I brought it up to my room. They, they, they figured that I got rid of, got rid of this kid till he's like 21. Um, so, uh, <laughs> but on, I, I vividly remember on a Saturday night, uh, you know, fooling around with the TV and I, like, I discovered the, the UHF dial, messing with that, get the channel 47, which was from Newark, New Jersey. And it just happened to be right at the moment that, uh, wrestling. And I just see this thing that says Lucha Libre. And I thought, you know, uh, I knew that the, the station was Spanish. I thought, well, maybe I can at least watch and, you know, maybe just watch the action. As it turned out, it was, uh, uh, Capital Wrestling from the National Arena, Washington, D.C. It was Ray Morgan, same guy. And it was, but it was all in English. And, you know, wow. so now, now, now I'm really hooked. Right. And um, so now this is early 68. Um, a couple of months later, they happened to be uh, appearing at the Island Garden. So it was like kind of a spot show. And um, I, I asked my dad. My dad wasn't a wrestling fan, but he knew how much, you know, he, he knew that I was becoming a huge wrestling fan. And uh, so he took me. He could have, I bet he paid like six bucks for two dick- tickets. But I, I remember the main event was Bruno versus Toro Tanaka. And Holy I smokes. Yep. And so at the end, they both start running the ropes. And when they collided, I swear to God, I still remember it. I mean, the sound that it made. It felt like an earthquake when they collided. And, I, you know, I'm thinking, like, Bruno, is Bruno going to get up? I mean, I have my heart in my throat. Finally, you know, Bruno gets up right at the count of nine. You know, Tanaka stays down. Bruno wins the match. And, you know, this guy, I, I, I do remember there was a six-man. I got to walk up to Edouard Carpentier. Oh, uh, the right flying Frenchman. Like, oh, yeah. And, and, you know, he was – I forgot who his two partners were. It was the best three out of five six-man matches. Shook his hand. I mean, you could do that back then. But – and then a couple of months later – no, it was next month, May of tw- uh, 1968. My my best friend who lived next door, uh, was it was his birthday. And my mom let me cut school so I could go with him to the – it was the uh, Hall, Huntington Mall on, on Long Island. And I brought some money with me. Very first, you know, you walk into the mall, there's a bookstore. And I, I used to like Mad Magazines back in the day. I think they were like 30 cents. And I thought, oh, maybe I could pick up a Mad Magazine. You know, lo and behold, the first thing I see is Wrestling World. And then I see oh, Wrestling yes. Review. Then I see the Ring Wrestling. You know, so P.S., like five minutes after I walked into the mall, I, I was broke. Yeah. <laughs> but when I got home, now the thing was, though, like I opened, I, I, I think, the first article I saw was about uh, the Infernos with um, J.C. Dykes. They wrestled, I guess, in the, in the Carolinas, maybe. And I'm thinking, like, I don't know who these guys are. In my mind, uh, all you know, all of wrestling was what I saw on Saturday night. You know, Bruno and, and, and you know, Tanaka and Earl Maynard and, and Victor Rivera and Hans Mortier and those guys. All of a sudden, it's like, wow, there's other wrestling. And, I mean, after that, I, I was completely hooked. Hook, line, and sinker. I mean, every spare penny for the next probably five years went towards the, you know, the purchase of wrestling magazines. And, you know, here we are, what, 55 years later, still talking about it. Which is just goes to show you the real grip that, you know, those of us who, who find it, it almost doesn't matter how you find it. You you still get that, the claws in you. And, like, some of us go in and out, and some of us are gone for a while, well, like myself, and come yeah, back I in. I mean, I've, I've taken some hiatuses, but, you know, and the funny thing was back then, 
in 67, 68, it was not fashionable for a 12, 13 year old kid to be a wrestling fan. There, you, you saw, you found out which of your fellow schoolmates were wrestling fans. <laughs> yeah. and, and then you'd walk over to them, like when nobody was around, Hey, did you watch uh, Smasher Sloan on Saturday night? You know, and then, you know, then one of the jocks would start walking towards you and you have to change the conversation. Hey, how about that filet of haddock in the cafeteria? Wasn't that great? Today? Like, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't fashionable. I mean, what well, that, that didn't happen for years, but I mean, it didn't matter. I, I, I was, I was completely hooked. Which kind of kind of brings us to today, where now you know you're you write articles, you're a podcast host as well. We'll get into that in a little bit. And the reason you're on tonight is this tremendous article that you wrote on the subject of this episode, Ivan Koloff. Now we were talking off air, and I'll let the people listening at home know. I actually had this episode all buttoned up, ready to go for uh, January first, and then I saw your article, and I'm like. Is this is this what they call serendipity? I don't know. This is very strange, right? So I start reading it. And I'm like, holy smokes! Like this. First of all, kind of covered it almost better than I would have or did, I should say, in my introduction to uh, Ivan Koloff. But more than that, it was such a great insight from somebody who's, you know, you were in that market, right? You were in that fever. So I want to first off just ask. What was it about Ivan Koloff that made you want to write this episode? And was it specifically because you were kind of in right in that time frame of where Ivan Koloff comes in and obviously the 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 unthinkable happens? It's just been like this long, continuous journey with the guy. I mean, obviously, so I'm literally 15 and a half years old on January 18th, 1971, I think. I read about it, if I remember right, and uh, there's there's an article online from the New York Times, but I remember reading in the New York Daily News, which was delivered to us every morning, and I, I, I there was, uh, in the sports section, Koloff defeats Bruno for the title, and I mean, if there was like, you know, a, a, a headline that said, Earthquake Kills 100,000, I think I would have still been sadder for the, for the you know, the, the Ivan beats Bruno. I mean, just, <laughs> I mean not really, but I mean, it, it was, it was just like my whole world. Like Bruno was my hero. Like that was just absolutely devastating. And it was, I mean, this, it goes to show though, how seriously wrestling was taken back then that it was even covered in the times. And I think at the time it set a record for uh, attendance at the guard for like 21,000. And it said, the funny thing is it set a record gate of like, 85,000, something like, oh, some quick math. Yeah, I'm an accountant. I mean, was it like $4.10 average per ticket? So it means like, you know, there were some five buck seats and there's some three buck seats, but now imagine going seeing something like that and paying, you know, even then, like, yeah, I mean, five bucks is maybe like, what, 30, 40 bucks, but still, like, to see something that historic. So, I mean, <clears throat> you know, of course, like, I hated the guy. I mean, just like Jimmy Vane, who's one of my closest friends in the world right now. I hated his guts when he turned on uh, Chief J. Strongbow right around the same time. You know, he was he was a baby face, came in as uh, handsome Jimmy or gentleman Jimmy Valiant, turns on Strongbow. Now he's handsome Jimmy Valiant, managed by the Grand Wizard. And, like, I hated him, too. But, you know, then then he left, you know, Koloff lost. He dropped the belt, went, you know, he wrestled all over the place. I mean, what a career the guy had. I mean, for years and years and years and always a heel, uh, but always on top. You know, always a main eventer, always winning some kind of belt. And, 
you know, and, and the story of how later in life he became a, a, a born again Christian. Uh, he, you know, he actually became a minister. I'm friends with his wife on Facebook. I thought, like, this is like one hell of a life. And I just wanted to, you know, just give my, my take on it. But, you know, and, and one of the things that, I mean, maybe like it was already covered uh, by you, but the fact that this man is not in the WWE Hall of Fame when he recorded what, in my opinion, is probably the most significant victory in the history of professional wrestling. You, 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 you dethrone a man who was a champion for seven years and eight months. If that's not historic, I mean, what is? See, and that's kind of a, if, if, Listeners at home haven't realized yet. That's kind of the running theme through this episode of of the fact that he's not. And, I mean, we could go on a tangent, and we probably won't right now, about whether or not the WWE Hall of Fame actually means what we think it means. The reality is the WWE has a reach of billions of people across the world. So, I mean, if, if you're going to induct somebody like Ivan Koloff, you know, in the posthumous uh, category, you are now exposing him to literally billions of people who weren't even alive when he right. was when he was on. And like you said, I think you said it uh, perfectly. There, here's a guy who was always a heel, always on top, and people hated him, and they paid to go see him. And it's wild, you know. You you mentioned what tickets would have been back then, and you know. You hear a, a, a gate of 80,000, and oh, that doesn't sound like very much. But when you adjust for inflation and you adjust for what that would mean in today's dollars, like, I mean, we're talking about 80,000 80, in, in early 70. That would be, uh, off the top of my head, almost five times, you know, that's like, that's a half million dollar house, essentially. Yeah. And that, that, and that's before, you know, this is before the advent of merchandising, and this is before the advent of all, all of these ancillary things that now are so commonplace in wrestling. But it's just fascinating to me that, you know, there's this story, and like you said, it's a fascinating story, and we're going to get into it in a lot more detail in just a minute. But from the wrestling side to the personal side, his journey is pretty incredible. And again, regardless of what anybody actually thinks about the validity of the WWE Hall of Fame, just the f- simple fact of somebody like that going in automatically means that he's going to be that much more accessible to that many more people. And I think that's kind of the bigger picture here that we need to focus on. Absolutely. And and Ivan Koloff or Ariel Paris, the man, is another story in itself. And just the, you know, in, in the course of doing my article – um, I actually chatted on the phone with Davey O'Hannon, uh, who was one of my favorite wrestlers back in the, you know, late seventies, early eighties, when I used to watch on Saturday afternoon. And he called him Red, even though, I mean, I, Red McNulty lasted, I think, for a couple of years in the, uh, the mid sixties, but they, that was his nickname with the guys was, you know, Red. And uh, he said that he, he was just the most incredible human being. And Davey would actually, um, drive him around a lot and Davey never charged him for trans and I even actually made them stop and he said I have to go into the it was like a souvenir store like I guess like a cracker barrel and he comes out with a gift and he goes this is for your father because I guess Davey had mentioned that his father was was a fan of Ivan he goes what's that for he goes you never charge me for trans he goes this is the least I can do for you and just Davey went on and on about what a great guy and I, I mean 
for me, it was a surreal moment. Number one, I'm talking to somebody that I used to boo the crap out of when I was a 20 year old guy, <laughs> you know, and I like, now I'm talking to him. Now I can, I mean, Davey's a good guy. Davey's a friend. And we're talking about another guy that I absolutely despised as a 15 year old. And we're talking about what a great guy he is. And I'm thinking like wrestling is, is there's so much more to professional wrestling than what you see on, on, on TV. And that's, that's what I really love about it. And that's what I love to write about. See, and that kind of leads me into another question that I kind of was, was thinking about is because with yourself and the Dan and Benny show, I think you guys are, you're over what, 140 episodes? In I think then? 150, 157, I think we just did. Okay. So many episodes, many different topics covered, but how many of these people would have had a connection with Koloff as well, right? Like if you look at it that way, you're also, you not only are you, and I'm not saying that your episodes, you know, we're on Koloff for those. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is he probably would have been a topic of conversation at some point in one of those 157 episodes. So you kind of factor that into your past with him, then the story you just told, and this kind of all builds into where you kind of go with the article. Right. That Yeah, correct. And it's, again, we're talking about, you know, these guys who, you know, you boo and you hate them and you want to throw things at them. You probably don't want to meet him in person, but then you hear about what what a nice guy they are after it after it's all said and done. I want to get into that, but you know one of the one of the lines that you had in your article was just kind of referencing um, how difficult it is sometimes picking up the pieces of somebody's life professionally speaking when they go through many name changes. And you know you just mentioned the Red McNulty name when you were researching the article how. How did you find going through the uh, archives of the many names of Ivan Koloff? Well, you know, he kind of kept it simple because he started out, I think. And, you know, here's the problem with being, you know, the, the, the Major League Baseball, I'm a huge baseball fan. I can look up any player who, you know, Cap Anson, who played for, the, you know, the Chicago Cubs in the 1890s. And I can, you know, I can tell you in three seconds how many hits he got or how many, you know, how many RBIs or how many home runs. You can't really do that with professional wrestling. The record keeping was very faulty. So there's one database that has an Ivan Zukov wrestling Bruno, I think in 1963, but then on another database, you don't see it. I, I try to use wrestlingdata.com. They show his first match in 1965, I think November as Oriel Paris, which is a real name. Um, against Bruno in Pittsburgh. And then in January of 66, uh, he wrestled Smasher Sloan, the brute from Butte, uh, on, on Washington DC TV, uh, you know, from WWWF, uh, as Red McNulty. And then that was his one and only appearance there. And then he, he, uh, migrated to, uh, Western Canada and for the next, I guess, maybe two years wrestled as McNulty. Kind of, you know, mid-Carter, you know, experienced some mild success, nothing special. But it's when he, in January of 68, he showed up in uh, Montreal as the uh, International Wrestling Association, uh, um, Johnny Rougeau's promotion. And that's when he first showed up as Ivan Koloff. And that was the name that he kept for the rest of his career. And, you know, we talked about him being, you know, even though he was only a three-week champion, which I think was a shame in the WWF. I think they could have gotten a lot more out of him. You know, they could have given him a superstar Graham kind of run, 
uh, before they, you know, they, they transitioned to Pedro. I don't think it would have done them any harm. And I think actually it would have done them a lot of good, but, um, little known fact though, he, he, he appeared in the IWA in January on August the 12th. He beat some guy named Mad Dog Vishon, who was another legend. Yeah, the, some guy. <laughs> some, some guy. Some jabroni, uh, for the, uh, their international uh, heavyweight championship, the IWA, which was considered at that time, a, you know, a world championship. So now he's, you know, WWWF champion, IWA champion. And here's like an, another one in uh, on June 18th, 1977. So he's wrestling in Florida, the uh, Eddie Graham CWF championship wrestling from Florida. He defeats, he, he goes out to Indianapolis, defeats Dick the Bruiser, and another minor legend, right? Um, and wins the WWA World Heavyweight Championship, which uh, he, he wrestles in Florida, but once a month uh, for the next five months, he makes the trip to Indianapolis to defend the championship. And then also once a month, goes to the, uh, earlier in the month, goes to the Keel Auditorium and wrestles their monthly card. So this guy is working a, a, a heavy-duty territory in Florida because in Florida they wrestle seven nights a week. But he made those shots every month. Thinking like, man, this guy is in demand. And I, I have another stat. I can read it later on. I mean, the guy was routinely wrestling between 250 and 290 matches a year. But, I mean, so now it's unbelievable considering what they do nowadays, right? I think Roman Reigns has wrestled eleven times this year. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Koloff did that in two weeks. But I mean, so now you have I mean, the guy has won you know the three different world championships, and then I, um, he won the WWC, the Puerto Rican Championship, uh, in 1989 when he was 47. And I mean, at the time that was also considered a world. So here's a guy who's won the equivalent of, of four different world championships and you're not, in, you're not in the hall of fame. That's crazy. Well, not only that, you know, just strictly speaking championships, but you look at some of the names that he wrestled over that period of time, right? You're talking like, you, you know, you've mentioned several, whether it's, you know, the Vachons or Carpentier had some wars with him. Uh, Dick, the bruiser had matches with him. Uh, Whipper, Billy Watson, another Canadian yeah. legend had a ton of matches with him. Then you look at the Rougeaus out east, you know, it's it's incredible. And then we're not even talking about, you know, down in the States, you know, obviously Bruno, Pedro, matches like that. But it, it's wild to me that, you know, the career portfolio isn't just about championships. It's not also just about high-profile matches. And how many sellouts he had, I, I, I can't remember if, if – if in your article it had how many sellouts that he had in Madison Square Gardens or not. I don't know if you have that figure off the top of I your head. I think that was off. actually in, in – because Evan, Evan Ginsburg did an article about him. I think he said, like, he sold out, like, all 13 times he main evented. That's right. So, yeah. you know, and, and set the all-time gate record, which eventually was broken. Every, every record is meant to be broken, obviously. But, I mean, you're looking at a record that stood for, what was it, about 20 years before they finally broke that record? Oh, yeah. So, you know, you add all this up, and then not only the places he was, not only the championships he won, but the longevity of his career. And, I mean, here's a guy who, who wrestled, for for God's sakes, he wrestled in ECW as well. Like, think about that one for a second. Right. It's it's absolutely incredible. And, you know, it's a real shame that, that people nowadays, if – 
if they don't even know him for the San Martino uh, streak or the the end of his streak, then you know, like I'm almost speechless at this point. It's like, what more? What more do you want to like kind of vault somebody into that position? And, and one of my measures of how great somebody is is how much in demand they are. And I, I mean, I'll read yes, this very true. Up. So from 1977 to 1987, I'm going to read you how many, and this is from the wrestling data.com. And even I, I suspect that these totals are actually understated because, you know, record keeping wasn't a fine science yet, but, um, it, 77, he, re, he wrestled, uh, 252 times, 78, 283, 79, 280. Uh, 1980, 275, 1981, 285, 1982, 264, 1983, 282, and then you got 269, 287, 236, and in 1987, he wrestled 220 times. So, I mean, you're, you know, from 84 through 87, you're talking about a guy who's in his, you know, early to mid-40s, and he's, he's, I mean, he's still in huge demand. Well, not only demand too, but he's he's making stars because you got to figure that like he makes Nikita right then too. So it's wild, like in the twilight of his career. You know, I put that in quotation marks, but you, it's it's wild to me, right? And here's a guy just you know from a small town in Canada, and then <laughs> here you go, right? He's just off to the races, and yeah, it, it's wild. It's absolutely incredible. Uh, as I said, my article, he went from red as in McNulty to red as, you know, an evil Russian. And he just, I mean, the guy, I mean, I'll, I'll go back to my, my days as a WWF fan. You had guys like Baron Cicluna, you had Dominic DiNucci, guys like that, uh, who homesteaded, I'll call it, where they didn't really bounce around. And late in their career in the late seventies and early eighties, they became more of an enhancement talent. They, you know, at that point, they were putting everybody over. And I mean, you know, again, they're in their early fifties; they're passing the torch. That all makes sense. But Koloff never really—he never really. I mean, maybe he slid down on the court a little bit, but he still was a, a main eventer even in his, in his mid forties. He was significant. He was winning, you know, six man titles. He was winning, you know, the the, the NWA title with Kernodal and and you know. uh you know, and, and uh, the sixth man with uh, uh, Khrushchev, I guess, Darso, Barry Darso. I mean, he's still winning significant titles. Just And if you watch his work you know, with Jim Crockett in the mid to late 80s, guy didn't slow down a, a, a beat. I mean, he still was, you know, in superb shape and a, a, such a great worker. Wait, and, and again, that kind of feeds into this whole – I don't know if we're building a case or what we're doing here. Maybe we're building a case for, for, you know, inclusion in the Hall of Fame, but more so an inc- a case for people to, you know, kind of take notice of his career. And, you know, we've been, we've been talking a lot about, and actually I should stop and go back to something you just said is, is that, you know, you look at a lot of these guys who were homesteaders, which is not always a bad thing either, right? But here's a guy, old, uh, Ivan, who was all over the map. And again, was a main event star everywhere he went. And the numbers of matches that you just illustrated is pretty remarkable, especially when you're getting into the 1980s and he's still doing 200 plus matches a year. It's it's right. pretty incredible. One thing that 
you know, I keep coming back to, and it's hard not to, is just it's that the I guess maybe it's the aura of the Madison Square Gardens, and and what he meant to that era of of those shows in the Madison Square Gardens. Can you take me back? I know we're kind of backtracking a little bit, but I really want to give people like a real tangible uh, taste of it, if you will. What was it like? Energy wise, what was it like? Anticipation wise, what was it like being a fan uh, at the gardens, going to those shows from, you know, let's say the late 60s into the mid to late 70s? It's the polar opposite. And I, and I because I do a lot of podcasts and uh, I, I try to keep up with the current product. And, you know, for an old timer like me and growing up with the wrestling that I grew up with, sometimes it's painful. And I feel like. You know, and, and Seth Rollins is, is a very talented guy, but when, when he, you know, the way he dresses like Liberace and, and, you know, the, the whole crowd cheering along. And I mean, they're all having a great time. And I mean, like, you know, they are being entertained. And, you know, I guess that's great if that's what you want. But, you know, when you went to a wrestling card at Madison Square Garden, you didn't have that. You, you were nervous because especially if you were a Bruno fan and he was wrestling, I don't know, let's say George Steele for example, who was in his nemesis for years, you went there legitimately thinking that, oh, my God, like, can Bruno defeat this guy? I mean, he's done so many bad things. And, I mean, it's amazing how, I mean, the old Vince Senior, the old WWF, they had this formula. They brought in a heel from a different territory. You know, they a lot of times, like, they brought in Bob Orton Senior. They renamed him Rocky Fitzpatrick. And because, you know, there's no social media, nobody knows, right? And and so he starts beating up the, pre, you know, having the squash matches. Then he'll beat, like, usually the the, 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 the litmus test was Arnold Skolan because he was Bruno's manager. So he, he had to, like, either attack Skolan or beat, like, um, Antonio Pugliese, who was Bruno's quote-unquote cousin. And once he did that, now, you, now you're ready for Bruno. And the, the buildup was absolutely incredible. You know, it took a couple of months you know, that now you have a match at the Garden with Bruno, which by now has had so much hype that, you know, it's a sellout. And a lot of these challengers were so formidable, like a Tanaka. To me, it was Tanaka was scary. You know, Killer Kowalski was scary. And, you know, you went to these matches, and you weren't going to be entertained. Nobody sang. You know, there was no, even, there was no entrance music. All of a sudden, you, you were sitting down, and you heard – you know, you heard murmuring and then it got louder and louder and it was Bruno, you know, walking down the aisle and it just got, I mean, to the point where, you know, I thought the, you know, the only louder pop I ever heard was, uh, and I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll relate how old I am. So Thanksgiving day, 1974, I went to see Elton John play at Madison square garden. Holy and, moly. Okay. But it gets better. So the, the, the host, the MC was a guy named Murray Kaufman, who was a disc jockey in New York called, his, his gimmick name was Murray the K. So Murray the K says, well, we have a, a, a special surprise guest. And they go, oh, who could that be? You know, maybe somebody. And it was John Lennon. And <laughs> I thought the place was going to explode. And I mean, they sang, uh, I think it was the first thing they ever did it, whatever gets you through the night. Wow. Uh, which became a huge number one hit. 
But I mean, that was the only thing that I can compare. Like when, when, you know, the crowd saw Bruno was that, that one, that one night at Madison Square Garden. But, but people were going to see Bruno was, Bruno wasn't just like, I mean, people go to see Seth Rollins. They, they like Seth Rollins, you know, people went to see Bruno because they loved Bruno. They adored Bruno. They had pictures of Bruno, you know, on their, on, you, you, you know, you're talking about a largely Italian population in New York in the, you know, in the sixties. You know, people joke that, they had pictures of the Pope, Jesus Christ, and Bruno San Martino <laughs> above their fireplace. No, but it's serious. I mean, that's how serious it was. And, you know, Br- Bruno, um, he made the remark many, many times that after, after Koloff pinned him, um, that he thought he, he thought he had sustained hearing damage because, um, he couldn't, it was so quiet. The crowd was so quiet. They, they, they were shocked. They were absolutely shocked that Bruno had lost it. That no, I, I I couldn't have seen that. And then Bruno said, after a while, he heard people crying. And I mean, like, and then as he left, people were saying, "We love you, Bruno." So it was just, I mean, the the whole makeup of the crowd and the, and the whole gamut of emotions back then was the polar opposite. But you know, unfortunately, wrestling has become a very I call it an, you know, impersonal sport because, you know, I live in Tampa. I live outside of Tampa. If I'm lucky, the WWE comes here maybe twice a year. But, you know, as a fan growing up in the seventies, once I got my driver's license, you know, I lived about 15 minutes from the Nassau Coliseum. They had a cart every month. I could go to the garden every month. They had, you know, uh, spot shows. So, I mean, I could go to see wrestling 30, 40 times a year. Now I can maybe see it twice and it's, it's just not the same. I think the fact that you could go so often, you know, you felt like you were a part of it and you don't feel that way anymore. Well, not only that, but that, and this is kind of an interesting side note, I guess, but it almost seems like nowadays it's the WWE is built around the WWE. It's not built around a Bruno or it's not built around a Hulk Hogan or it's not built like there's, there's really no star that transcends the company. Like it used to be back in the day, like a Piper or anybody. Right, we've seemed to have lost that over the over the years. You know, even even in the '90s, you had you know The Rock or Austin or whoever. We really we don't have that that person anymore. Maybe it is because you don't get the 40 dates anymore, so it's hard to kind of build that connection. And then you know you don't run into the wrestlers at the bar anymore. You don't run into the wrestlers at the mall anymore. You, you know, they're they're in your town and then they're gone. Yeah, so you, know, you, you, you can't wait until, uh, you know, you could actually wait until Bruno left the garden and he would sign autographs. That's what I mean. You know, he didn't set up a table and say, okay, we're going to do a quick meet and greet. No, you know, everybody's going to have to pay 20 bucks. I mean, he just signed for everybody. Yeah. Also leave your credit card because <laughs> right, yeah, he, had, he had a little imprinter in, in his, in his briefcase, you know? Yeah. So I think that that, that might be a big part of it too, is just, it's that, that connectivity. Right. right. So, so you, when you re, and you you big you see big time when you look at the old tapes, right? Of just you know people use the term over, but it's not. There was a level of connection that fans had with the wrestlers back in that day, with the ones they loved, and sure with the ones they hated, because you know for as much as people were, would go to pay to see someone like like a Bruno, or they would pay to see someone like a Pedro, or pay to see someone like Hogan. They were also paid to see that heel get his ass kicked. You know what I mean? Well, and I'm glad you said that because uh, 
and I know Evan's going to be a part of the show, but um, the movie 350 Days, which uh, I've seen a couple of times, there's a gentleman, not very well known. His name is Howard Jerome. And I think he wrestled actually as a German heel. But he said something that has that has resonated with me that I'll, I'll never forget. He said, there's a fundamental longing in the human heart to see good triumph over evil. And I, I think, I mean, and that was the premise of professional wrestling for years and years and years that, you know, you know, the baby face gets attacked and, you know, or Bruno got attacked and he, you know, they go to the garden and maybe Bruno loses by DQ. So they're going to, you know, they're going to do it again next month. And that's another sellout. And maybe if it's really good, it leads to a third match. Now you have three sellouts at Madison Square, Gar- Madison Square Garden and you move to the next heel. But it was always that ultimate, you know, good versus evil. And eventually good won, even though it, it might have taken a little bit of time. But nowadays, those lines are completely blurred. Yeah, which again, it's that's a, a big thing that we've lost over the years. And, you know, everybody loves their realism, I guess. But there's there's still a way to do it and have those lines. In my opinion, I, the the formula is not it's not that complicated if you really boil it down. But you need to have people who who need the perspicacity to actually pull it off, right? You need somebody who wants to be like, I'm not saying be like Bruno, but have carry themselves like Bruno. And we really don't have a whole lot of people like that nowadays. I know we're going on a whole tangent about new stuff. Maybe we'll get back to, to Koloff. But, you know, that kind of feeds into it too, because without a heel like Koloff and somebody who takes himself seriously as a heel, you can't have that all-star baby face. So... I mean, no, I mean, that's he, he's the protagonist, you know, I mean, or the antagonist, rather. I mean, Bruno doesn't sell out the garden unless he has a Koa or a Tanaka or a Monsoon back in the day, you know, to to, you know, have have the match with. So, yeah, I mean, it was very important. And I mean, who played it better than Koa? And he, he he never, you know, he never faltered just consistently for, you know, two decades playing evil, evil Russian heel. So as we step out of your fandom side and into the, we'll say the writing side, the the historical side, were you surprised at all to learn just how nice of a guy Koloff was outside the ring? Yeah, you always. That's to me the most satisfying part of of writing a story. And I'll, I'll give another example. I had. Um, Mike Cicluna, the son of the great Baron Mikel Cicluna, oh, yes. on on the podcast, because I did want to write a story about his dad, who was one of my, he was one of the few heels that I actually liked, you know, back in the day. Just There was just something so intriguing about him, just the way he carried himself with that, that robe with the Maltese cross, and he was so big and had that scowl and, you know, just, you know, always had the roll of quarters in his pocket or dimes. I always justified it. I said, well, you know, that's in case some one of the fans after the matches need to do their laundry or make a phone call. That he just, he just has a handy. <laughs> he's he's a good guy, you know. But 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 to hear his son talk about this man that a side of him that we never saw that you know that he was a good dad that he always tried to be there that he was on the I mean back then those guys I mean they they were on the road you know three hundred days a year but that when he was home. He was completely devoted to his family. And um, 
you know, those guys had a very hard life back then. But, you know, and the same thing, you know, Davey O'Hannon, uh, I talked to him about, about, uh, Baron Cicluna and he said he, he, he used to babysit Davey's kids. I mean, like, this is the guy who, like, was choking people out and, you know, hitting them with can openers and stuff like that. But, you know, know, he's, like, playing in the backyard with a three-year-old kid. (laughs) Right. But he he said, like, he he thought the absolute world of, you know, he called him Mike. And he got him a – Davey was in the the union, I guess, with the newspapers. And he got a lot of those guys. He got Johnny Rods, um, S.D. Jones, uh, Cicluna, Danucci. Got them all jobs with the, I guess, with the New York Times, where they they made some decent money. It, it, it's very alarming that back then, those guys did not make a lot of money. The ones be, before, you know, Vince Jr., they didn't they didn't make a lot of money. They, you know, they they went from you know from town to town. But I mean, think of the wear and tear. Imagine being away from being away from your family on Christmas or New Year's or Thanksgiving, you know, or their, your kid's birthday or you know graduation or whatever. But that's the life that they they lived in. They're, I always say that there was no PTO in professional wrestling back in the seventies. You, you know, you, you you broke your finger, you know, you could wrestle tomorrow and get paid, or you know, don't wrestle and don't get paid. And these guys had bills to pay. It was it was a very tough life, but that was. I mean, the, what I love the most about doing the research and the writing is learning about the, you know, the behind the real, the real person. And a lot of it, like the camaraderie that these guys had with each other, that it's very, very heartwarming. Yeah. And again, it's, it's not something that you would know unless you were in the know back in the day. Right now you can read about it online and it's, again, we're talking about things that have been lost, you know, in later generations, but you know, it's, it is interesting. I know for myself personally, when, when you're researching these individuals and, you know, through the years, yeah, I, I kind of heard that Koloff, you know, in real life was a good guy, but I didn't realize how, how good of a guy he was, right? And then you, you start to learn about how he really turned his life around, you know, got out of the drugs, got out of the party and all that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, he had his turn to, to, uh, religion after it's all said and done. And then ends up uh, starting a ministry as well as I believe. Yes. So it, yeah. it's like, he, here's a guy who again you wouldn't think that this hated heel who you know broke Madison Square Garden's heart would later in life run a ministry. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, and you know it, uh, his wife told me that Bruno was actually his hero. And Bruno was instrumental in bringing him into the WWF because I guess you know when he first saw uh, when he first wrestled Bruno in Pittsburgh, he made enough of an impression. But that's the one thing people don't know about Bruno. Bruno brought a lot of these guys in. He brought in uh, Toro Tanaka. He saw him in, in Hawaii. He brought in George Steele. He brought in, um, you know, he, he, he you know he brought all these guys in. He brought in Koloff and and um, Renee, his wife, Koloff's uh, Ivan's widow, said that. When he would talk on the phone with Bruno, he behaved like a twelve-year-old child. Like, <laughs> and, and it's it's funny when she told me that because I remember that when I you know I spoke to Bruno on the phone for the first time. I had a I wrote a tribute about Bruno on Facebook, and one of my good friends, his name is Mike Miggett, actually lives in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and did some printing work for Bruno, and became good friends with Bruno as a result of it. And he read, he goes, I'm, I'm, I'm taking Bruno out to dinner for his birthday. 
uh, tomorrow. Would you mind if I read him your your tribute? Is it would I mind? Are you kidding me? Wow. And, and, and yeah. And then he goes, well, don't be surprised if, if Bruno calls you. And I said, yeah, whatever, right? Like, sure, you know. And I'll, I'll probably see Elvis at Burger King tomorrow too. You know? <laughs> and sure enough, and I worked at a car dealership at the time, you know, and as a finance manager, and you can get like crazy busy in that kind of job. As luck would have it, six o'clock, which I'm normally I would normally be swamped. Phone rings. My friend Mike, he goes, "There's somebody that wants to talk to you." And I'm thinking, like, this is going to be a rib. It's going to be somebody who sounds like Bruno. And uh, but it was, I mean, Bruno's voice was unmistakable. And he, the what he said to me was, "Benny, where did you learn to write those beautiful words?" Wow. Which, like, and I said, Bruno, I said, when you write from the heart, it's easy. And I mean, I became a 12 year. I, it was 1968 all over again for me. And this was like 2016, 2017. And, um, you know, I, I, I chatted with him for about 10 minutes. And about a week later, Mike called me and said, you know, Bruno's planning a, a big get together, uh, Christmas week at his, at Rico's, which is a restaurant in Pittsburgh. And he said, he wants to know if you'd like to attend. It's like, would I like to attend? Like, are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> I, I swear to you, within a half an hour, I had my plane ticket bought. I had my hotel room reserved. I had a rent. No, I didn't rent the car. I had an Uber, but I, 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 and I arranged for the PTO at work. And I mean, it was one of the best nights in my entire life. That's absolutely incredible. Like, uh, what do you say to that, right? Would you like to go? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, well let me let me think about that for a minute. Yeah. Okay. Let me let me just clear my calendar real but, quickly here. But I, like I'm sitting. I mean, this is a man that I idolized growing up, and here I am. I guess I would have been at the time uh, 61, 62, talking to Bruno about each of our moms and like what their their you know what Italian dish they cook the best. This is what we're we're not talking about Toro Tanaka and Kowalski. Hey, hey, Bruno, did your mom make brajol? Oh, yeah, but she really made, uh, you know, the, the boy, her ziti was good. This is the yeah. conversation we're having. <laughs> wow. Well, that's that's incredible. I, I couldn't even put myself in those shoes. I, no, I, it was I, – I had to pinch myself a hundred times over. Which is and, – and again, like how, how wild is it that, you know, you go – you have that experience with Bruno. You, like you said, you're Facebook friends with, with – uh, with Koloff's widow, like what a small world this whole wrestling thing well, is sometimes, eh? And the, and the funny thing is now, as a result of that, you know, I, I about six months later, I wrote the story about it, about my experience with Bruno. I call it Bruno's Last Christmas. And I, that was my first story for Pro Wrestling Stories. And, oh, and no way. I didn't realize that. Yes, yes. And, I mean, I think Ivan's was my, I think my 34th. But, um, yeah, uh, but as a result of that, I got invited to be on a podcast that, you know, it was called Wrestling with the Future. And as a result of my appearance, I guess they liked me enough. Said, yeah, would you like to be a, a semi-regular? I said, you mean, you know, I get to ch- talk about wrestling once a week? Yeah, count me in. And so I did that for a bit. And then um, Dan Sebastiano, who was also on the show, and I, because the, the host of the show wanted to get more into non-wrestling stuff. Yeah, conspiracy theory, things like that. And we thought, you know what? We're, we're wrestling guys. So we decided to spin off on our own. And, you know, that's what we've done for the last three years. But it was all because of that night at Rico's restaurant. If I didn't, if I didn't have that night, I don't think any of this ever would have happened. That's unbelievable. 
Like, unbelievable. Just one one simple thing like that just changes an it's entire because trajectory. I wrote, because I posted a tribute to Bruno on Facebook, yeah. Wow. that's <laughs> You blew my mind. What can I say? That's unbelievable. Wow. What do you say to that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the pa- and I'm thinking like, geez, like, uh, I mean, all of this has happened. And like, well, Bruno I think passed away in 2018, 20, yeah, 2018. 2018. Yeah. So I mean, all of this has happened in the, in the last five years. I've been on like probably a total of 200 podcasts. You know, counting you know besides mine, well, about another 50, not counting mine. You know, I've written 34 stories, and I've, I've made, like, if you look at my, my cell phone, I mean, I have, like, all these wrestlers' numbers in there, and I can actually call these guys, and they'll talk to me. Like, you know, they won't tell me to piss off. It's like, hey, Benny, how you doing? And, um, you know, I can even text Ken Patera about hookers, and he'll and answer back. You know? <laughs> I mean, how great is that? But, I mean, it's just, I, I tell people, like, you know, if I wasn't so old, I'd keep pinching myself. Now there's, like, a risk of clotting, so I don't do that very often. But uh, <laughs> it's just, I mean, my sister, she goes, the way you loved wrestling and what's happening to you now is, like, it's like a dream come true. Yeah, it's just, it's wild, like, the doors that get open sometimes just doing a simple story, not a simple story, but you know what I mean, right? You do a little bit of legwork and all of a sudden you, you're introduced to this person and now you're following this story and now you're formulating now your 34 articles in, like you said, and, uh, 250, well, that'd be 251 podcast episodes, I suppose, by the time this one comes out, but yeah, just what a wild ride, hey? Oh yeah. And I mean, another example is Jimmy Vyant. So, I mean, again, I hated Jimmy Vyant and, I had him on the, we've had him on the podcast a couple of times, but I, you know, I, I made the trip to his, uh, his camp, BWC, Boogie's Wrestling Camp, which I am the commissioner now. Uh, but, you know, very first thing, you know, I, I shook his hand. Hey, Jimmy, I'm, I, we had already done the podcast, so he knew who I was. I said, you know, hey, Jimmy, I'm Benny. I said, you know, by the way, I really hated you when I was a kid. It was the first thing I said to him. And he laughed. I said, when you turned on Strongbow, I hated you. I called you every name in the book. And for once, like, I didn't get in trouble because my mom wasn't in the kitchen, like, nearby. <laughs> you know, I, I got away with it. And, like, he just started laughing. But, you know, like, I have that kind of – it's it's just – and and the, all of these people are just the salt of the earth. They're just people. And they're so grateful that people still remember them. And that's, you know, that's what we're really trying to do here, too, right, Is is to – remember their stories properly and put it in the proper context and really, you know, give fans a chance to one, rediscover the individual, but two, learn about them in a new light, you know, presented factually presented properly without a bunch of, you know, innuendo, if you will. And that's really, you know, right. That that's always been my approach with this program. And it, it really helps when, you know, I could talk to people like yourself who, like again, that the, the article that you wrote on Koloff is just unbelievable, and there is going to be a link to that article in today's show notes. So when you're listening to this okay. episode, folks, uh, very simply, you check in the show notes. There's going to be a link to the article as well as a link to uh, the Dan and Benny show as well. Uh, so I can't thank you enough for ruining my podcast schedule, but <laughs> more I'm than sorry. that, I'm I'm so glad that you put this thing out, and I was actually able to have this conversation with you to get this oh, information yes. out there. Because this, like I said, 
what a, what a serendipitous thing this all was. Yeah, no, it, it's been a pleasure. It's, it's, and it's, I mean, we, I think until my dying breath, I will never stop, you know, enjoying chatting about wrestling with anybody. It's just, you know, it's just such a pleasurable thing, especially, you know, the wrestling that I grew up loving. Now, uh, before, because I don't want to take up too much of your time tonight, before I let you go, is there anything that we didn't cover about uh, Koloff that you want to get into before I let you go? Um, no, I mean, just, uh, I mean, the, the, I really want, wanted, like, I, I had written it down that, you know, the fact that he was working in Florida, but then he's the reigning WWA champion, which is a whole whole different territory. You know, Florida's Graham, WWA in India's Bruiser, and then he's wrestling for Muchnik, Sam Muchnik, once, once a month. You could do that back then. I mean, we, we had Ken Patera on the podcast, and one of Patera's claims to fame was in the span of four days, he won the Intercontinental Championship from Pat Patterson, and then within four days, he beats, uh, I think it was um, Kevin Von Erich for the NWA Missouri Heavyweight Championship. I mean, both of those titles back then, I mean, I see titles a prop now, but back then, you know, and, and you know, at that time, it was a legitimate title. It was really like the, you know, the, the precursor to the World Heavyweight Championship. And the NWA Missouri title was the same thing. I mean, if you look at the, the you know, the, the men who won that title, it's a Hall of Fame right there. And you got Harley Race. You got Von Erich. I mean, you got Backlund. You got Patera, uh, Briscoe. Anybody who was anybody won that championship. So, I mean, this guy is winning titles in two different promotions four days apart. It'd be like MJ, MJF, like traveling to uh, going on SmackDown and like you know winning winning the U.S. Championship. It's like you're not going to see that. I think some of us would maybe rather see him on that show, but I think that be might be a no, whole I mean, different conversation. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be great? If, I mean, what, what kind of like I mean, what kind of ratings would they get if something like that happened? That and that's a whole other. I mean, that's a whole different podcast. Is you know the the ratings, you know the ratings now versus the ratings, you know. 25 years ago, and then the ratings made like 50 years ago. It's, oh, it's just, absolutely. That's why I – this is a tangent again, but, you know, I always get a chuckle when you see on, you know, the whatever Facebook group nowadays, oh, oh the, the, we're, at, we're at another wrestling boom. It's like you guys don't know what you're talking about. You don't – you have no idea. No. No, I mean, and I don't think anybody's done the analysis. I, I wonder if Jim Cornette would do it, but – if you took, you know, back in the day when it was 25, 30 territories, I mean, you think each one of them had their own TV show, because that, that's how you, you know, that was the formula. You, you did, you know, you did your interviews and your squash matches on TV, and that built up to whatever show you had. But, I mean, if you took 30 of these shows around the country every week, I guarantee you, like, the combined viewership was, like, multiple times more than are watching on a Monday or a Friday night. I think they might have so, got that in, in Memphis alone, to be honest with right. you. So, I mean, like, I almost want to do a story. It's like, where did all the wrestling fans go? I mean, even now, I mean, if, if SmackDown's getting 2.2 million and, and Raw is getting like a million and a half, well, you you know that the same million and a uh, two point uh, million and a half that watch Raw on Monday night are probably watching SmackDown. So, I mean, they're not, you know, it's not unduplicated. So, I mean, let's just say maybe two and a half million they have. Well, I mean, what, like, what were the, ra- the, 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 um, the ratings for, uh, a Saturday Night Live back in the 80s with Hulk and, well, 15 million people? Maybe. Yeah, for the, for the main events. Yeah, it was about that. And I think that yeah. one, the one with Andre, was it not 20? I want to yeah. say. 
I mean, wh- where did those millions, I mean, even the Monday Night Wars, you know, when, when like, maybe Raw was, you know, 7 million and, and Monday Nitro was another 6 million. You had, like, between 10 and 15 million people watching wrestling on a Monday night. Where did they go? all go? Yeah. AEW has, like, that little niche, but, like, you know, maybe, you know, three-quarters of a million. So maybe combined – you have 3 million people watching wrestling as opposed to, you know, 13, 14 million in, in the late 90s. Like, where where those people go? They moved on. It's sad. Well, it is. And it's, you know, we joke that it's not like it used to be, but it's not like it used to be. Not even close. No. And, that, and like, like, even friends, you know, my friends, we, we'll talk about it. Like, you know, how it used to be that you would anticipate, you know, watching uh, like a – Monday Night Raw, or you'd anticipate watching the pay-per-view because you wanted to see not even the show, but you wanted to see one person, or you wanted to see one match specifically, or, you know, there was something you had to see. Now it's like... Yeah, I remember watching like, when when Sting originally did the Crow gimmick and he didn't speak for about a year. You know, I, I would watch every, you know, every Monday night just to see what he would do. Because they, oh, you know, they, they kind of they kind of built upon it. They, that was the thing you you built upon. You built your storylines. Where now you know somebody fights at you know eight fifteen, and then they have their blow off match at ten thirty. Like the entire storyline story was consummated in two and a half hours. There's no build to it. Yes. Yeah, and now it's yeah, it's definitely not like that. Now it's more of a, a talking. Now it's just now it's a sing along and it's an entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's the single longest in app description. Yeah. All right. Uh, so before I let you go for the night, uh, just real quick, do you want to let everybody know where they can find you, your social media and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I'm just I'm just Benny Scala, the player. On uh, there's a long story behind that on Facebook, but <laughs> I, you know, I write I write for Pro Wrestling Stories. Dan and Benny in the ring. Uh, it's found on the Monty and the Pharaoh YouTube channel. It's also on any uh, audio podcast platform. But I, I've recently branched out a little bit. So now I've uh, I've done about five episodes of a true crime podcast, which I'm a huge fan of true crime. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I've done episodes on uh, Charles Manson, um, Albert DeSalvo, uh, the guy uh, Ronald DeFeo. I don't know if you remember the Amityville Horrors by way before your time, but – Guy went home from uh, a night of drinking and killed his fa- whole family of six. Yeah. And then somebody bought the house, and supposedly there's a lot of eerie goings on after that. But um, yeah. And then the last, actually, the, my last episode was on uh, Tammy Sitch, Sonny. Oh, yes. The, there's a wrestling tie She's a criminal in her own right now. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then my next one's going to be on Whitey Bulger, who, uh, you know, was the mob boss in yes. Boston. The Irish, you know, the Irish organized crime for many, many years. So got that. And then recently started a baseball podcast called Line, the Line Drive Baseball Podcast. And then we do a show called, this is the one I really, really enjoy. It's called The 30 on Thursday nights live on the Monty and Nefaro channel. Mike Monty is the moderator. This, uh, I'm one of four panelists and he'll throw out like a random current wrestling topic and we have 90 seconds to give our take. And then we get, you know, he's the judge, so we get points on our takes. And we have no idea what's coming. And, I mean, it's not easy to just, like, you know, all of a sudden, geez, I got to 
I got to go for 90 minutes, 90 seconds on this. It's, it's not an easy thing to do, but I, I really love it. I'm, I'm the current reigning champion. I've, I've won, I've won four out of 12 shows. So, so far so good, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. So I'm, I'm a busy guy. I, I, I like being busy. Apparently so. And like I said earlier in the episode, uh, all the links to, uh, all the places where you can find Betty will be available in the show notes of today's episode. Uh, Betty, I can't thank you enough for your time tonight, man. This, this was a real treat for me. Oh, it's my, been my pleasure. It's very, very enjoyable. Before we get into the next segment of the program, my incredible interview and discussion with Evan Ginsberg, I'm going to play some more classic Ivan Koloff audio. Now, during the course of my conversation with Benny, and you're going to hear a little bit more of it during my conversation with Evan, we discuss the, we'll say, legitimacy of the WWE Hall of Fame and our thoughts on that subject matter in particular. But I found some interesting audio of what Ivan Koloff thought about what he wanted in terms of being included in the WWE Hall of Fame. So I'm going to play this classic audio because I think it's really going to dovetail nicely into my conversation with Evan Ginsberg. And on the other side of that incredible Ivan Koloff audio, good friend of the show, Evan Ginsberg. Uh, kidding, Larry. I, I was uh, going to say that uh, uh, Vince is probably afraid that I'll challenge him a book, you know. But <laughs> uh, I, I think probably he's holding out for another time, but uh, maybe... Where uh, the situation maybe where I wrestled more, you know, California, I wrestled a bit out there, but not a lot, so maybe he's waiting for a different location or something. So if it happens after, I guess his life's got to go on, so uh, I don't, uh, I'm not going to cry over uh, anything like that. Just uh, it was a little disappointing because after wrestling over 50 years and still being part of uh, being around it, I uh, end up. Uh, you know, really love to have a little bit of the, uh, you know, royalties that may be involved and maybe the autograph sessions would be involved with WWE. And, uh, but if that's not to be at this time, uh, no fans, I said, well, yeah, I'd still get some shots anyway. So, but, uh, maybe later on, I hope, uh, it'll work out. Yeah. You would think that they would want the most legendary villain possibly in their history, the guy who beat Bruno San Martino after seven years in the Hall of Fame, right? Well, you'd think so, yeah. I think that, uh, I suppose, yeah, look, when you look at it that way, like I was actually the third person to ever have the belt, you know, to get it from someone like a legend like Bruno. Yeah, the significance of it to me is real uh you know, to the people, man, that they would think that, uh, man, what's this guy even alive today? He must be, uh, you know, not committed around. Just Bruno, myself, and a few others that uh, still alive from the, that era, you know. So, uh, but uh, hopefully it'll happen one day here and uh, not too long in the future because, uh, you know, I would like to be still in good enough health to be able to participate in doing some things after, and uh, but uh, I'll uh, keep my fingers crossed here, and uh, I know just go on with life, and 
probably Hollywood's going to call me anyway any minute now. Or I'll win a big sweepstakes or something, you know. Okay, um, thanks for having me on. Yours truly was the associate producer of The Wrestler with Mickey Rourke. I appeared in the film and acted with him briefly as well. Um, also the associate producer on 350 Days, starring Bret Hart, Greg Valentine, Tito Santana, Three Dozen Legends. The producer of Wrestling Then and Now, which is also available and stars Killer Kowalski, Don Dr. Death Arnold, Nikolai Bokov, and many others. Um, the senior editor at Pro Wrestling Stories, and I have been following wrestling for 50 plus years, attending wrestling pretty much the same amount of time, and Ivan Koloff is one of my heroes, and I am glad to be able to speak and speak on and honor him on this show because uh, you do a great job with this program and uh, happy to be back on. So I guess before we get into the meat and potatoes, if you will, I got to ask why Ivan Koloff? Because to me, you know, there are so many big stars that came out of that New York territory. I mean, you had San Martino's obviously a god, but you had... You had the Moraleses, you had, like, every, you, you name the star, they've been through there, right? It doesn't matter what decade it is, what era it was, whether it's the silver, the gold, the attitude, you've had everything there. What is it about Ivan Koloff, before we get into the actual story of him, that drew you to him, and why were you so fascinated by him? Well, let me put you in the mindset of a 1970s wrestling fan. For the most part, we were blue-collar marks, <laughs> and Ivan Koloff had held the WWF championship, having beaten Bruno Sammartino at Madison Square Garden, and Bruno had been champion for over eight years and was practically a saint in that market, a hero and Ivan Koloff beating him, even though he held the title very briefly, had so much credibility back then that he was a perennial headliner. He headlined Madison Square Garden 13 times. 13 times. Wrap your head around that. That's a huge number for um, a heel opponent. And he headlined against Bruno Pedro and Backlund. He was always brought back as a main event star because that title win meant so much. And let me let me put an asterisk next to that. Stan Stasiak, who held the title even shorter, <laughs> okay, um, same thing because he was a world champion back then, and it meant so much. He would, he would perennially be brought back as a main eventer against Bruno and work the entire circuit on top. So back then, the world championship, whether it was the NWA, AWA, WWWF, it just meant so much more than today where they'll pop a TV rating and change a title on a whim and a 
else. Uh, John Cena's 16-time world champion. <laughs> Randy Orton's God knows how many times he's champion. And it doesn't mean anything. You don't even remember who they won the belt from or lost it back to. It, it's just popping ratings. So Ivan Koloff had this unbelievable credibility. But also, he was arguably the greatest foreign heel of all time. You could say Iron Sheik, you could say Nikolai Volkov, but in any discussion, Ivan Koloff would be one, if not the greatest foreign heel gimmick of all time. And a tremendous, tremendous performer, okay? You know, it's not just that he held the belt. You know, he he was a wrestling machine he was a powerhouse. They'd hurl him through the air like a projectile, you know, which wasn't always the case back then with massive guys like him, 275 pounds or 290 pounds, depending on the era or whatnot. I mean, Ivan was a great, great wrestler, great, great gimmick, great draw. And when you saw... Ivan Koloff against Bruno Sammartino live at Madison Square Garden. There was this gravitas. There was like this awe and wonder. We were marks. He had beaten Bruno. On any given night, you are thinking he could beat Bruno again. (laughs) And they had the very first steel cage match at the Garden, Bruno and Ivan, also in 75. So, you know, when you... Let me say something else. There was no entrance music. There was no pyro. There was no special effects. Bruno came out in a pair of tights. Ivan came out in a pair of tights. They walked down the aisle, and the building shook. The building shook. And I'm not exaggerating. I'm not being melodramatic. The charisma that both these guys had, and when these guys just looked at each other across the ring and locked up. It it was like a gasp. Like, you know, the fans were riveted. You know, these were Marvel superhero and supervillain come to life. And um, Ivan was tremendous, tremendous. And um, I I would personally rank him in my top 10 easily in in a top 20 of all time and certainly top five foreign heel gimmick as i said earlier so there's something you mentioned i thought was very fascinating i want to circle back to before we get into the actual story of ivan koloff is is how many times he main evented at madison square gardens because again we're talking eras where the lists of names were plentiful of stars that would come in, you know, assuming that Bruno was a champ, or even if Pedro was a champ, you know, these stars would come in, they'd work a match, and many of them was, was only once or twice, right? You can go down the list of, of challengers for the title, Dusty Rose, for example, here's one, right? Not Certainly not 13 times like Koloff, I'm certain. Uh, Dusty Rhodes wrestled Billy Graham uh, twice on top for the... Uh title when Graham was champ 
twice. And that's what I mean, right? You look at the list of names throughout history, and the fact that this one name, Ivan Koloff, keeps coming up, and that he was, as you said, just a consistently dominant force in that market and just drew the fans with that magnetism, if you will. To me, that speaks more about how he was able to connect with the fans as a as a foreign heel. This guy that every you were you were paying to see him for one of two reasons. Either you were a, a sadist of some kind or some kind of a masochist, or you were seeing or you were paying to see your hero beat the wheels off him. And to think that fans would come out in droves 13 separate times to see this at that venue, the historic Madison Square Gardens, that in itself is quite the feat. I think that's something that needs to be, you know, we need to go a little bit more into that as well. Well, let me let me just add something. Um, back in the day, a sellout at Madison Square Garden was listed as 22,092. You know, whether that's exaggerated, whether there were comps involved, I mean, it's still 22,092 is an enormous number. So, uh, and when they had the steel cage match, they opened up the felt forum, the adjoining venue, which held several thousand oh, more. Oh, that's right. Circuit TV, closed, like they used to do with Ali and Larry Holmes and Duran and Leonard, etc. Closed circuit. So you're, you're talking an easy 25 or so thousand people. So when Triple H says, you know, Vince took wrestling out of bingo bingo halls and VFW halls, you know, you're, he's rewriting history. You, you know, the WWF, Vince McMahon Sr.'s territory were huge arenas for them i mean there were smaller venues as well but you know madison square garden was not a bingo hall it was quote unquote the mecca of professional wrestling and ivan koloff headlined it time and time again because he was an amazing talent and an amazing draw with unbelievable credibility and let me add this <laughs> Ivan Koloff and Billy Graham formed a tag team. And this is interesting. This people probably don't remember this or just weren't there. Ivan Koloff and Billy Graham would team. Also, they headlined the Garden. One night it was Bruno and Tony Parisi against Ivan Koloff and Superstar. And what would inevitably happen when they would wrestle is they would start arguing and Billy Graham and Ivan Koloff would start pushing each other, <laughs> and, 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 and they would start. They would start like just about going at each other, and the fans were one hundred percent with Billy. So when wow. Billy said Vince should have turned me, turned me face, he was absolutely correct because the fans would have loved him. He would have been Hulk Hogan ten years earlier, you know, eight to ten years earlier. And um, it's a shame because he would have been a great face champion, Billy Graham, and Ivan Koloff would have been an ideal opponent. Ideal. Billy Graham versus Ivan Koloff would have been huge. And um, 
But Ivan Koloff had incredible heel heat at the time. Let me add something else, because, you know, I'm 103 years old, and some of you younger <laughs> won't, won't, won't know this. Think about every James Bond movie from the 60s and 70s. They were fighting the Russians. We were in the middle of the Cold War. The Cold War. So guys like Ivan Koloff and Nikolai Volkov were perfect heels as, as Russians. And as kids, when we were in school, we would have drills where we would literally hide under these ancient wooden desks for when <laughs> the Russians nuked us. <laughs> the, 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 uh, the wooden desks from 1937 would protect us from the nuclear bombs that would rain on us from Russia. So See, I figured it would have been all the lead paint on, <laughs> on the <yeah>. schools. <laughs> yeah, that too, that too. But um, Ivan Koloff and um, Nikolai Volkov were perfect deals for that era. Ditto, ditto, the Nazi heels, Baron von Raschke, Waldo von Erich, Hans Schroeder, Kurt von Hess, Karl von Hess, etc. My father sat there. My father was a World War II veteran. So you're in the 1970s. World War II was only you know 30 years behind. Absolutely. You know? So again, it, these were not these were not internet savvy smartened up fans, sheet reading fans. These were blue collar guys who this was their escape. And for the most part, you know, not a hundred percent, but for the most part, we believed, we believed them. Ivan Koloff was a legitimate threat to Bruno, to Pedro, to Backland, etc. so on. And, uh, you know, add to the fact that the guy was a great wrestler, a great brawler, a great bleeder. Uh, he, you know, again, he even did high spots where he's flying through the air. You know, the guy could do it all. He, he was, you know, one. I've seen thousands and thousands of, of wrestling matches, wrestlers literally around the world, and Ivan Koloff was as great as virtually anyone. So it's interesting because, you know, as, as you said, you've you've watched thousands of matches throughout. You whether it's I'm sure even if you don't, if you would discount uh, the live ones, whether it's you know on video or whatever. I'm talking, you, I'm talking live. I, that's what I'm talking about, right? I started attending in 1974, so you're you're looking at going on 50 years. So when you're when you're talking about somebody who's as prolific as Koloff was not even just in his prime i'm talking like throughout his entire career because he, he was a guy as you stated earlier right weight fluctuated most guys do that's you know with age and time whatever but he was a guy in my opinion who adapted to his or he, i shouldn't say adapted but he changed his style throughout the years to incorporate different things, whether it was more brawling, whether it was more high spots, whether it was more of the blood, gut, score, whatever you want to call it nowadays. Nowadays, they practically shoot each other in the ring, but we're not going to get into that, I don't think, right now. But 
he's one of those he was way 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 before his time in terms of reinventing himself in the ring and i'm not talking about in terms of a new character or a new way of presenting himself i'm talking about the work in the ring what he was able to to bring to the ring is that something that you you caught a glimpse of early on and was that something that you were able to follow as his career progressed especially in the new york market Ivan was a machine, much like Killer Kowalski, you know, great cardio. The guy could just go 15, 20, 25, 30, 35 minutes, easy, easy. You know, uh, the, the guy was a tremendous athlete, athlete, you know. Um, later in his career, as your body starts to break down a bit, he was smart enough to reinvent himself as a tag team wrestler. The Russians, I saw him monthly with the NWA in Philly in the mid to late 80s. And he was still on top, still on top, you know, and, and still great. Ivan and Nikita, Ivan and uh, Krusha Khrushchev, you know, the Russians. And it was basically the same spiel, you know, those no good Americans. We're going to get those no good Americans. It still worked <laughs> in the mid to late eighties. And, um, I would see him on the NWA cards. And I tell people to this day, Crockett's NWA mid to late eighties was the greatest wrestling I ever saw live. I would travel New York to Philly virtually every month. You'd have flair on top, the horsemen, Ivan and the Russians, Midnight Express, Rock and Roll Express, Rick Rude and Manny Fernandez lower in the card, Jimmy Valiant and Billy Graham who headlined the garden a zillion times, lower to mid-card, okay? It was the most stacked shows you could ever imagine. Better than any, a monthly card in Philly, NWA, that era, was better than any WrestleMania lineup. Any WrestleMania, believe me. And um, they would pack, you know, it was like a 10,000 or so seat arena. And Ivan was always on top or near the top. I mean, the, the Russians' gimmick was huge. Nikita eventually branched out more solo. You know, you had Nikita and Magnum doing the four out of seven series. And Nikita eventually turned face. But the Russians were always, um, you know, big, big stars in the NWA as well. He was never one of those guys who, you know, got old and, you know, lost it all and was jobbed out. He, it, it never came down to that. He was a star. I mean, you know, from nine, from the late 60s to the late 80s. And uh, I'm glad he never went through, you know, that decline that so many have, um, where to this day, I, I just cringe when somebody will say, Baron Cicluna, you know, uh, Jerry Valiant, Butcher Paul Bashan, et cetera, were just quote unquote jobbers, which is, which is uh, you know, a derogatory term. They didn't, they don't know that these guys were champions, main eventers. And, and I'm glad that Ivan never went through that, you know, where he was always a star and 
you know, he went out on top. He uh, was never like he was the guy fed to the, uh, you know, younger guys on TV. So I have nothing but great memories of him. And, uh, you know, just basically for 15 years from from, uh, 1975 to the, the late 80s, I saw him regularly and he was always on top and always great. Always great. So that's something that you you just brought up a point, and I want to circle back to quick before you kind of progress any further is the fact that he never was used as that you know the washed up wrestler status, right? Right. You know, you you, you, we've seen it. I'm not going to list the names, and we've seen you know the guys even in recent years, right? They go from now. I'm going to date myself too, right? You see the guys go from the WWF to like TNA and then they're, you know, they're the washed up guys and they're just there for a paycheck. You saw this, you know, from, from the sixties onward, there's all, there's a, many names you could name and I'm not going to right now. Cause it's not really the time or place to do it. But what I will say is that Koloff was never one of those guys who had the knock on him for being there for the paycheck, right? He, he wasn't, he wasn't there to show up and, do 10 minutes of stand up in the ring and hit the showers. Right. He was, he he was there to, he was there to work and he was there to, but not only work, but he was there to draw as well. And I'm glad you brought that aspect up because, you know, you look at NWA in the, in the, even when he was there in the seventies, never mind, but also in the eighties as well. Right. He's still drawing. People are going to see him. He is the, the reason it doesn't matter that it's, Maybe it's not 22,000 like MSG, but show me somebody today, uh, anybody today, just about who could draw 10,000 people with that person himself in a match against, name the opponent, but would that person himself and an opponent draw 10,000 in an arena today? Probably not. But Koloff was, and this is, you know, almost what uh 25 years into his career at that point it's it's unbelievable yeah yeah he uh, another thing that i i neglected to mention was bruno himself you know he had power as a champion for over eight years he said ivan's the guy i want to beat me bruno's body was broken down bruno was exhausted bruno wasn't a kid anymore so he saw this unbelievable athlete who was credible and it wasn't embarrassing to him to lose to, to an Ivan Koloff. <laughs> he had nothing but respect for him. And if you look at Bruno's history, some of his, you know, most prolific opponents who he wrestled hundreds of times was Killer Kowalski, Waldo Von Erich, these were great, great wrestlers. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Waldo Von Erich was fierce, and he was a big guy. Um, Vince McMahon Sr. built the promotion around super heavyweights because Bruno bench-pressed, I believe it was 565 pounds or something. He was a powerhouse, so you had to have somebody who was big and mean and powerful and legit to be a credible opponent against Bruno and um, even Backlund, because Backlund was, you know, like a machine, you know, 
physically uh, an amazing, you know, athlete. So Vince McMahon Sr. built it on, you know, these big, powerful, credible guys. And Ivan Kolsbach, <laughs> this guy was 275 pounds, and, you know, and he could move. He was fast. Absolutely. Yeah, he could do it all. So, um, you know, you, you don't headline the garden 13 times if, uh, if you're some slug (laughs) it is interesting and i I, i'll do a bit of a sidebar here before you get on track but it is interesting that two of the most well-respected champions in history uh bruno san martino and luthez handpicked canadians to usurp them as champions obviously the koloff issue with san martino paid off in spades uh, has originally picked Gord, uh, George Gordienko from Winnipeg, but with the immigration issues that obviously fell apart and that if anybody's interested in that story, they can listen in season two. We have a big deep dive in George Gordienko, but it is, it's interesting that it would be two Canadian heavyweights or should have been two Canadian heavyweights to dethrone two of the longest reigning champions of their era's holding their prestigious titles. I just think it's an interesting uh, little side note, a little footnote in history. Well, you also have to remember in the 1960s, it was not an open business with with hundreds of schools and everybody and his mother's a That's true. Trainer, yep. trainer. Even Holly Race initially was kind of like held the veterans bags and carried the bags around and had to pay his dues before he was trained i think he so had to do a like little that. bit of uh he had to do uh hygiene work for i can't remember the wrestlers it was that haystack calhoun i believe yeah yeah that's right too yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um but anyway you know, <laughs> yeah we race, will get into that right now <laughs> yeah that's a that's a whole different story but uh my point being Holly Race, who's also one of the uh, top ten greatest of all time, you know, he, he didn't just stroll through the door. So a guy like Ivan Koloff paid his dues and, you know, really learned his craft before, you know, going out into the ring and uh, building his reputation and finding the right gimmick. And when Bruno, quote-unquote, chose him and the promoters agreed on him, Ivan Koloff as the interim champion. It really meant something back then. You know, again, Bruno was champion eight and a half or so years. So, so when somebody won the belt from him, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, I just read Bill Apter's book and I reviewed it for Pro Wrestling Stories. It's a very good book. Um, Bill Apter was covering the 1971 title change at the garden, which was a little before my time. And, um, so Stanley Weston, who ran the, uh, the magazines that Bill Apter worked for said, Bill, you can't tell anybody. This is a big deal. Bruno's losing the belt dive and you're going to, you're going to be the, you're going to take the photos there. You can't tell anybody. So Bill Alta couldn't <laughs> smarten up his dad. He couldn't tell his dad. Okay, it was it was so top secret. It was a different business, you know. It's like uh, now if a title's going to change, everybody knows it. 
weeks in advance. And I mean, Bruno losing to Ivan was a huge, huge deal. People, people, it's a different world. People can't, you can't grasp the mindset of 50 years ago unless you were around during that period. And even Billy Graham beating Bruno, you know, was a tremendous big deal. And, and that was only a three and a half or so year reign. But uh, a title change back then meant meant everything, everything. Now it's, you know, eh, this is his 12th reign, his 13th. Charlotte Flair's number seven, number eight, number nine. It's, it's like meaningless. Well, and it's, you know, that's, it's the hot potato mentality. Unfortunately, we saw a lot of that start in the Attitude Era, so, and it's kind of progressed from there. You know, good, bad, or indifferent, it's here to stay, unfortunately. You know, maybe they're going to reverse a little bit with Roman Reigns. He, I think he's had it for, what is it, three years or four years, but... Well, it's a, it's a very, very different business. Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent it is. Yeah, Roman Reigns will come in and wrestle some big pay-per-view in a new market, you know, in Wales or whatever against McIntyre, and it becomes, uh, you know, a big money event with uh, big money packages. You know, back then the champion defended every month in the same arenas around the circuit, and they were expected to draw every month. So, um, you know, again, Ivan winning was was a huge huge story back then so here's something that's often not discussed and I, I would like to get your perspective on it so you know obviously Koloff ends the the vaunted reign of Bruno Sammartino you know just about eight years long right it's like seven it's like as close it's like seven and five six or seven and three or whatever right almost yeah, eight I, years I, long I the exact number but it, it was around eight yeah. years yeah absolutely so he ends the reign he holds the title for i believe it was 21 days and he he loses the title to pedro uh morales but at the time and you know, a few years after that, were people looking at Koloff like he was he was a uh, one and done, or did people think that he was actually going to come back and challenge and get back into the title picture for the for winning it again? Well, that that was my point when he came back in 1975 against Bruno. It was a huge deal that they sold out Madison Square Garden three months in a row, three months in a row. Okay, you know. Um, you're talking hundred thousand dollar gates back then, which was you know a lot of money for that era, and um, he, he and like I said, the first steel cage match at the Garden, and after he lost, it wasn't like he was diminished. You know, he was still on top, tagging with Billy Graham, and uh, you know what they would do. Well, what they would do back then is go to a different territory at some and uh, come back hot again. So in 78 or not, 78, he came back to wrestle Backlund, you know, and, and he was on top again. So uh, the guy who always had that credibility where he could main event. Yeah, which is, so just in our quick uh, inflation cal calculator, if you will, so 100, 100 grand back then, in 1970 is uh, almost 400,000 now. 
Yeah. Which is, and, and like you said, the amount of times that 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 occurred is it's stunning almost, right? When you when you compare it to nowadays. Egypt, and, and, and that's just one venue. That's what I'm talking about. They, they go to Boston Gardens and Philadelphia Spectrum and, and, you know, all the major arenas up and down the East Coast, the WWWF. So Ivan Koloff generated millions and millions of dollars for them as the heel drawer on top. So, so, 50 years later, how is Ivan Koloff not in the WWF? Hall of Fame. He's not on Vince's good list. <laughs> let's let's look at some of the uh, quote-unquote allegations as to why. One, he was part of the concussion lawsuit that many of the wrestlers signed on to. So this, of course, would tick off Vince. Two, at one point, Billy Graham. Ivan Koloff and Ernie Ladd went to Vince Sr. and said, we want more pay and we want equal pay because all three of us are on top and the draws on your cards. Okay? Even though they were not the champions, the champions at the time, I'm talking, you know, 75, 1975, 1976, the trio, who were the big heels of that day, said, we want to be paid more, and we want to be paid equally. Whether one's on top and one's in the co-feature, or one's on top and the other two are tag-teaming that night, pay us more. Okay. Okay, three. Be- be- sorry, before you get to three, because I just want to explain, because we, we have some listeners who are newer to getting into the history side of things, so... Before we get into three, let's sidebar for a second and just explain to everybody how the pay structure would work on a on a show in the sixties, seventies, even into the eighties. Well, the, Bruno, Bruno, Johnny Valiant told me would get about eight thousand dollars to headline the Garden, and his opponent would get more more in the two thousand dollar range, which you know again. For the fanboys who do the, they all pissed it away millions of dollars on wine, women, and song. They have no idea of just how little these guys made. Many of these guys pre-Hokamania era never broke a hundred grand a year. They never broke a hundred grand a year. So where they're pissing away millions of dollars, squandering their wealth is beyond me. It's a fanboy myth exaggeration. Yes, some wrestlers squandered their money, but again, before Hulkamania, mid-80s, they were not making huge money. Okay, so you're on top of Madison Square Garden, the, the, the heel facing Bruno. You're going to get, you know, with the exception of Bruno, the biggest payday of the night. So... Basically, it was almost like a mini-union where Ivan, Billy Graham, and Ernie Ladd said, look, we're all the draw here. Pay us more, pay us fairly. And um, interestingly, the very next year, 1976, Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody come into the territory, and 
nobody knew them. And it was considered, it was considered a big drop-off in talent. You know, you're going from Graham Cole-Fled <laughs> to Bruce Brody and Stan Hansen. So it was just a freak thing that Hansen legitimately hurt Bruno, you know, uh, you know, broke his neck or whatever the case may be. And um, it made Hansen a, a huge, huge star. And Hansen and Brody teamed up at the time in the uh, Tri-WF. But um, they were not considered, they were kids at the time, quote-unquote kids, and they didn't have that reputation. But again, these were big, huge guys. They were perfect opponents for Bruno. I saw I saw Bruno and uh, Brody in a cage back back in uh, 76. So, uh, But it didn't have like that gravitas of an Ivan Koloff or a Billy Graham, particularly after, after Graham and uh, Koloff uh, won the belts. So let me just say one other thing that's a little footnote in history. Um, Billy Graham and Bruno with Billy Graham and Ivan would come back time and time again to wrestle Bruno, even when Bruno wasn't champion, as the co-feature right. on Backlund's cards. That's right. Because, because it was such a draw. And and up and down the entire Tri-WF circuit. So, you know, Ivan generated a lot of money for them. So, so, so you, you have... A third scenario where Ivan literally left the Tri-WF and went to Eddie Einhorn's IWA, which had TV across the country and was considered at the time some kind of competition or threat. And there's Ivan Kohler headlining against Mil Mascaris, who was their champion, um, because he was getting better money. And uh, this did not endear him to the McMahon family competing against the WWWF. So there were, there were multiple reasons why Ivan is, is not on Vince Jr.'s good list and is not in the Hall of Fame because I can assure you He's more worthy than 90% of the guys and women that are in there at this moment. It's, it's, a, it's, it's petty. Um, I, wrote a, I wrote a piece for Pro Wrestling Stories. Um, I called it WWE's shame. Ivan Koloff, not in the WWE. Which movie. is a true way to say it. And as, I mean, how, I, how petty. As well, that link... Uh, to Evan's article will be in the show notes of today's episode. So as you're going through your podcast player, please click on the link. You can read it. It's right there. There may and be your blood, pressure, your blood pressure will go up when you read it. I think that's true. <laughs> well, the, so I want to stay on this topic because there is so much conjecture about why he's not in. Also, uh, you, you know, you look at the list of names that are in, and he's not, which is. Unbelievable. Just gave you three, three, three reasons. Three very strong reasons. So theories, I'll give you four, and I have a feeling that you personally may have a number five, but I'll see. Number a fourth reason, and th- 
one that I always thought was interesting is going back to our discussion about the AW or sorry the NWA his time in the 80s when it was really hot right this is a time when many of the uh, the big stars uh you had you had Flair you had Rhodes you had uh the Road Warriors were massive stars there right you you had uh you had the Rock and Roll there just the the plethora of talent as you illustrated earlier was was immeasurable huge and the fact that he would quote-unquote leave the wwf and go to the nwa at the time who, who were still rivals you know there's a big split and we can go into the history of all that uh it's probably too much to go into right now but i had always heard and perhaps maybe i'm wrong about that but i heard that that was a thorn in the side as well because why would you leave the wwf the wwf and go to the competitor i'm throwing that in quotations and then be on top right again he's made he wasn't a preliminary guy he was main eventing he was top of the marquee he was drawing the crowds and i always had heard that that was one of the reasons that his name was kind of not blacklisted, but maybe we'll say uh, push down the rungs a little bit in, in terms of recognition by the WWF and now now known as the WWE nowadays. Uh, it could be a, cumul- a cumulative effect of all of those things. Um, you know, um, it, it ultimately comes down to money. And um, Ivan wanted to be paid fairly, and he went where the money was. And when he was sick for several years with cancer, um, sadly, WWE still wasn't gracious enough to put him in the Hall of Fame. And uh, they had GoFundMes and they were hawking T-shirts. How disgraceful, you know, that this guy didn't have a pension or 401k, health benefits, etc when he spent so much time so many nights working for uh the mcmahon family utterly disgraceful and whatever the reasons may may have been the guy deserves to be in the hall of fame he's not he wasn't quite the wrestler that pete rose was but oh god obviously you're uh, talking about your article is going to make blood pressure i think you just made mine yeah. <laughs> um but maybe maybe at some point when uh vince who controls the wwe hall of fame good list the, the hall of fame is basically his good list um uh, maybe at some point they'll put him in or uh in that ridiculous, uh, what do you call it, Legends Wing or whatever. Oh, you yeah, know. when they, because Lord knows they have to have their quota of, uh, you know, wrestlers who have passed on, which is, that's a that's a whole other ball of wax. I'm, I'm sure I we're mean, not going to get into that's tonight. When, when you dump a Ray Stevens without even bringing up his family or, you know, doing it right. It, it, it's disgraceful. So, um, 
Yeah, maybe at some point they'll do that for Ivan once Vince is really out of the picture or eventually gone. But um, when he was sick and dying, and it was known that he was sick and dying, they should have been gracious enough and done the right thing and put him in while he was here to appreciate it. And, um, you know, the, the, this is a ruthless corporation. They, they don't, you know, it's not the way they're wired. So uh, thank, thank you to you, to you, for doing shows like this and keeping memories of, you know, guys like this and John Tolos and uh, all these great wrestlers, you know, to devote an hour or two hours to somebody there are times WWE won't devote 10 seconds to acknowledging somebody who passed. They didn't mention Lanny Poffo when he died on their TV. This was a dear friend of mine. This man slept on my couch. This was a friend of mine. Okay? To not mention him because they're pushing some inane, you know, stultifying angle that insults your intelligence you can't spare 10 seconds okay they very 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 briefly put a picture of ivan up there if i remember correctly i think you're correct about that and that's about it that was it that was it and uh no hall of fame no video tribute pretty much you know (laughs) so what can I say? I don't want to belabor the point, but, uh, you know, thank you for doing shows like this because um, for those, for his family, for his friends, for his fans, and for history, because, um, okay, you're not in the Hall of Fame. So a show like this is really going to chronicle and honor somebody much more so. You're not going to see a, uh, an Ivan Koloff documentary coming from WWE film. No, they don't care about <laughs> no, definitely no. not. Yeah, which you know, and I'm not going to get into you know the uh, the documentary aspect of it and what what they do and and do not do in terms of that. And you know what, I will say I'm I'm thankful that there was no you know, Dark Side of the Ring episode on the concussion lawsuit because that would have been just a crock and we all... Uh, you personally, you know my feelings about that whole series and the way that they portray things, so I'm kind of glad that that hasn't been a thing. And I'm not trying to give them any ideas in the next, you know, few years, but, you know, it, it's it's not only uh, chronicling his, his career and, and things like that, but it's also trying to get the perspective of somebody outside of... Canada, right? Because he had obviously there was a big impact here in, in Montreal. He was very, 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 very well known, even though he was the Russian bear, right? <laughs> you know, they knew, right? And he, yeah, he, he had like Maple Leaf Gardens, like everywhere else. And he and 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 they loved him. They loved to hate him, <laughs> certainly too. But but it's it's interesting to to hear your perspective because not only did you did you watch him you grew up watching him you moved into adolescence but then you also went back and you looked into him when you got into the writing side and that's what i think is fascinating is that 
this is somebody who's stuck with you through the years, like a John Tolos, who who we've mentioned many times, right? But here's somebody who, who, and it's not just you personally, but but that whole area, that era of wrestling fan. Here's somebody who from a foreign country, because Canada is, it still is a foreign country in, in terms of America, right? Here's somebody from a foreign country, a French-speaking province on top of that, and comes in and leaves an impact, a lasting impact on an entire generation or generations. And to me, that that's the story. That's what I wanted to illustrate to people tonight or today or this morning, whenever anybody's listening to this, is this is why he should be discussed and remembered whether or not he's in some fictitious hall of fame is irrelevant the 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 facts speak for the for themselves and and that's the real reason about doing this program tonight well let me let me add this um why is somebody like ivan koloff um so important to me when you look back at the best nights of your life you spent it with your late father who took you as a kid or or as a teenager or both to the matches and you're sitting there together enjoying Ivan Koloff so so my father died when I was 20 so when I look back at my life there were many nights where my father and I saw Bruno versus Ivan Koloff at Madison Square Garden, Nassau Coliseum, headlining also Nassau Coliseum, major arena. Um, and these were great, great nights that you spent with your beloved father. And for somebody else, it could be your mother, your uncle, your aunt, whoever it was that took you as a kid. Let me take it another step. As an adult or a quote-unquote wrestling journalist sometimes i cringe at that term because <laughs> a lot of wrestling journalists can't write no no <laughs> they, they also can't story. do a whole lot of things no, but... <laughs> um you meet an ivan koloff and you approach a hero that guy's nice the guy's so nice and gracious and warm and friendly and accommodating Oh, yeah, I'm happy to sign this for you. Nice to meet you, you know, and you're not disappointed, you know. It's, it's, not, it's not the, uh, the undertaker charging $200 for an autograph for a photo op. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 a, it's a fan meeting a hero, and the person lives up to your expectations of, who this person is and um yeah on, on so many levels the guy he never disappointed you in the ring and as a person let, let me just let me just say this okay i i have a love-hate relationship with this business if you watch 350 days you're gonna see some you know it's not all happy the documentary that we made. These guys had a tough, tough road. Okay? So, you talk to anybody in the wrestling business about Ivan Koloff, 
And they're going to say he was a great, he was great in ring, and he was a great human being. He was a great person. They're going to say that about Terry Funk. They're going to say that about Roddy Piper. They're not going to say that about everybody. <laughs> okay? There's a select list of people who are beloved in this in, in this industry that, that did not leave a trail of, you know, angry, disappointed people who were disillusioned after their encounters with them. Ivan Koloff was beloved and is, is years after his death beloved in this business and that is not always the case believe me Nikolai was the same when Nikolai died speaking of Russian eels not to go off on a tangent <laughs> but, but when Nikolai died Bret Hart who wrestled everybody everybody said Nikolai Volkov was the nicest wrestler I ever met in that's this right business. yeah he said that yeah I'm quoting him so you will get the very same sort of reactions with legends when they talk about Ivan Koloff. And let me take it to the next step. As a writer who has interviewed many, many, many legends over the years, inevitably, the legends, not the fanboys who go, Roman Reigns is the greatest of all time or whatnot. The legends will tell you the greatest of all time Buddy Rogers, Luthez, okay, and you'll probably be surprised, Prime Ray Stevens. That, that Those are the guys, the legends, inevitably the older legends, cite as the greatest of all time, right? That same rarefied air, Terry Funk, Ivan Koloff. Bruno, not that he was a great, great wrestler, but because he was just so respected and beloved, Harley Race, Nick Bockwinkle, and a handful of others. But in, but inevitably, whenever a legend talks about Ivan Koloff, it's with reverence. Reverence! Okay? And uh, I'm just stating this not an opinion that's a fact i've interviewed hundreds of legends over the years whenever ivan's name comes up oh he was great guy was great he was great in the ring what a nice man what a great person you know that's the reaction and uh i don't know i don't know what what else to say uh you know short of rattling off results and statistics but <laughs> you know um, nothing but respect and love for this guy and uh, among my greatest memories of being at wrestling and uh, seeing him on top and he was fierce like Kowalski he just kept coming at you the cardio you know the, the guy you know this, this and eventually eventually sadly because of all the bumps, because of the thousands and thousands of matches, his body started to break down and he was in a lot of physical pain and he just couldn't do it anymore. And that, that was pretty much it. So, um, you know, your body gives it. Or as the wrestlers like to say, there's, there's only so many bumps. That's your right. Body. Yeah. 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 So, 
you know, and he was smart enough not to hang around too long. There are guys, I'm not going to name names, but there's guys who just hung around too Yeah, we don't need to get into, yeah. Yeah, and they were a shell of what they were, and people don't even remember how great they were because they stayed around way too long. And, um, but Ivan never made that mistake, you know. He, um, he left an impeccable body of work. And uh, luckily, not all, but a lot of it still exists. Because he was still a big star in the 80s. And, uh, you know, you could watch a lot of his stuff on YouTube or um, Peacock, WWE, whatever the case may be. A guy like John Tolis, who I'm writing a book about, there's not a lot of his footage. There's not a lot of his footage. You know, it was a race. The uh, Chinsey promoters would tape over the TV just to save 25 or 50 bucks on a tape. And um, so a guy, a guy like John Tolos is more lost to history. Ivan Koloff, there's plenty you can watch and enjoy. And it's a little piece of immortality um, where you can just go to YouTube and there he is. And I'll tell you, I, I haven't... It's it's almost it's almost like a melancholy experience. I'll occasionally watch an old match from the Garden, and it'll do, and and there's so much charisma, like a Bruno versus Ivan. There's so much charisma, and and then you start to wrap your head around it, and you go, Bruno's gone, Ivan's gone, the referee's gone, mm-hmm. the announcers are gone, you know, and 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 it. it it, it hurts. It really hurts. And I could go beyond that. I mean, as somebody who went pretty much every month back then, I'll look in the audience and see people I know and go, Georgie Ann Macropolis, the uh, wrestling writer, she's gone, you know? And But the beauty of it is, you know, one day we'll be gone and your show will still be out there and Ivan's matches will still be out there. And the movies I make will still be out there, or whatnot. And and you know, Ivan has a little piece of immortality. Immortality. Why? Because he was great. Because he was great. It's not churning out vanilla content like WWE a zillion hours every week. Ivan was great, and it'll live forever. And is and in his own way. Like a movie star from a hundred years ago or fifty years ago, he'll live forever, and uh, it's a it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. I guess before we finish up tonight, is there anything else that we didn't cover that you think that we should uh, get into? Um, um, I hope that maybe through fan pressure or whatnot, people will. Tell WWE, put him in the Hall of Fame, because that would be the final, you know, um, cherry on on the top or whatever the expression is. Uh, He deserves it. I think it will introduce him to many who were too young to have seen him or really know of him. And um, I mean, even the NWA stuff from the 80s, that's 40 years ago. You look at 35, 40 years ago, you know, um, we're going into 2024 shortly, you know, 
1985 to 1990. It's a long time ago, even when he was in the NWA. Hey, easy now. Some of us were born in 85. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, you're a lot, lot younger than me. So, um, I, um, well, I, you know, every once in a while I'll see his uh, widow online and she's very appreciative when the fans speak well of him and speak highly of him so i know a show like this will mean a lot to her and uh his family and it you know uh but if you're asking me for one last point i would say let the fans or the wwe universe the wwe universe let the fans tell them Put this guy in the Hall of Fame, finally. It's the right thing to do. He more than deserves it. It's not even debatable, does he deserve it or not. It's whether they're willing or not. So uh, I'd like to see it. I'll tell you a funny story. I'm a, I grew up in a black neighborhood, and I grew up on R&B. And I said, before I die, I want to see the uh, spinners in the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Ivan Koloff in the WWE Hall of Fame. They just put <laughs> the spinners in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So <laughs> you got to fulfill my uh, final it's wish. It's time. Yeah, put Ivan in there for uh, WWE. If not, if not my uh, vacation plans over Christmas, I'm going to go visit the WWE Hall of Fame in Parts Unknown and spend quality time in the Ivan Koloff wing. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> anyway. Oh, that's tremendous. Well, thanks, Evan. This was this was awesome. I, I... My, my pleasure. It's from the heart. You know, it's really... Uh, the guy was just so great. So great. You know, it's hard to even put it into words. The guy... Oh, man. I, uh, I hope that... Millions more over time will discover him and um, appreciate him because, uh, you know, there's a zillion wrestlers, but there's few and far between as great as Ivan Cola. Before we wrap up tonight's episode, first off, I want to thank my two tremendous guests tonight, Benny Scala and Evan Ginsberg. You can find links to their projects in the description of today's episode, the show notes, if you will. I really hope that you'll take the time not only to read their articles on Ivan Koloff, but also to check out their other projects. You heard the plethora of projects that both of them have on the go. And I also hope that you guys check out what they are up to in the very near future. Evan has something in the works that I'm really excited for personally. So I hope that you guys will get uh, Give those articles a read and give their projects a look-see, if you will. I also want to thank you, the listener. We are in Season 4 because of you. If you could do me the biggest favor and hit that follow or subscribe button on whatever podcast platform that you are listening to this program on, it would mean the world to me. As well as if you are able to leave a 5-star rating and review once again. It's one of those feel-good things that I like to uh, get once in a while. So even if you don't, still, thank you very much for listening. And I hope to uh, I hope to have some great content for you in Season 4. As we wrap up this episode, I think the best way to wrap this up 
is to hear Ivan Koloff in his own words. Now, this audio I pulled from one of his uh, seminars that he had, I believe it was just a couple of years before he had passed. But I think it's a really great showcase of just what a down-to-earth, honest, and truly warm-hearted individual he he really was. And I think that's about the best way to end this episode. So I will sign off as I usually do by asking you to take care of yourselves and each other. And I really hope that you enjoy this last piece of audio. My friends, Ivan Koloff, thank you. I believe that uh, if I had a chance to say it, every time I have a chance to say it, I do it. I uh, turned my life over to the Lord in 1995 out of necessity. Uh, I was raised in church, Roman Catholic Church. I thought because I went to church and I was a Christian, and consequently, uh, I didn't have all my things in priority, my life in priority. I ended up going out there and trying to find happiness through drinking, drugs, and the wild party life, and uh, thinking that I was doing the, the thing of this world, like you know, like everybody else. There are a lot of other people I figured were doing, and it was the thing to do. And realized that uh, in the early 90s, after I quit the WCW, and saying, man, I got to get out of these drugs because I got really in bad shape from marijuana to pills to the cocaine and the drinking. Uh, I was a mess. Uh, Should have been killed uh, uh, dozens of times at least and uh, came close a couple times. And uh, I uh, ended up uh, being approached by my nephew Nikita and uh, on the phone. And he says, uh, uh, uncle, he's excited. I want you to show up at the church, Assembly uh, of God Church. Uh, on uh, Sunday night, uh, I says, uh, why, why, Nicky? He says, well, uh, I think I know what you need in your life. I said, Nicky, I was raised in church. I know who Jesus is. He says, so does the devil know who Jesus is, but knowing who he is and accepting him is two different things. And that really got my attention. So I went to the church like he suggests I do. And uh, so I say now this day, uh, I got Nikita into wrestling. But he got, I got the best of the deal. I got, uh, I got the Lord into me because I went to the church that day and I was convicted of what the preacher was saying and realized that that was the truth, that uh, God made us in his image, that uh, I was a sinner, and that uh, the only way I was going to get to heaven was to ask Jesus to come into my heart because uh, he was the Son of God and that he died for my sins and was raised from the dead. And that price that he paid, paid for my sins too. All I had to do was accept him and have a relationship with him. And I did that that day. I, I ended up asking for my heart. And uh, I had quite an experience that day because uh, God touched me in such a way that I couldn't deny that he was for real. And uh, I'll leave that to your imagination. But uh, I was really taken back, to say the least. And uh, I was told to get into the Word because the Word would uh, renew my mind, would uh, increase my faith. and. Uh, that's what I needed. I needed Jesus in my heart. I needed the God's Holy Spirit. And that's the way you do it, by increasing God's truth, His Word. I just went on faith and just started reading the Bible, reading the Bible. Didn't make a lot of sense to me. Tried to pray, didn't know a lot about prayer. And uh, uh, struggled a little bit with the drinking and uh, uh, chewing tobacco and that. Uh, but I couldn't afford the cocaine no more. But uh, I asked God to clean me up of all this stuff. and. Uh, he did, 
just a matter of time. I was uh, cleaned up from the, the chewing tobacco, and then uh, the marijuana, and then the, the drinking. And uh, so it's not an issue with me no more. If, if I take a prescription, I'm conscious of it. But if I just went back to the doctor, because I was on for injuries, you know, I was on uh, uh, some pills, Vicodin, uh, my kidney numbers are up. So Vicodin's hard on that. So I went back and got on another one. It wasn't so hard on the kidney. So you got to watch yourself anyway. You got to, and, and God tells us that, you know, that uh, the truth will set you free. The truth is uh, God's word. And he says that we need to look after our bodies. So not only what we eat, but the way we take care of it by uh, pills and all this stuff and consuming stuff. But he's good. God's good just to be able to do that. And to me, that's uh, the whole essence of my life today is to be able to go out there and share that with people. And I, I try to do it when I'm doing autographs for Children's Miracle in the last 20 years, uh, uh, in the last 15 years at least, uh, doing the autographs since I became a Christian, 17 years now. And uh, But uh, I go to churches. I got ordained here seven years ago and perform uh, ceremonies for uh, weddings. Uh, and uh, just uh, love to go to churches and brag on the Lord. And, uh, of course, going to the events anytime wrestling like this is really a treat because I get to see some of my old friends like today here at uh, Winston-Salem. And uh, man, it's great to see you know, guys like the Rock and Roll Express and Barbarian and guys like that, you know, Jimmy Valiant, the Boogie Woogie Man. And uh, even though they beat me up and gave me a bloody nose often and <laughs> busted my lip and that, it was, uh, it's always good to see because you get to respect guys like that, you know. Good to see them again. But uh, got a good wife, got a, a couple grandkids, babies now, daughter who sings gospel, really good. She's got my talent, she's not only got my talent, but my hair. <laughs> I claim it. I say, I don't have the hair no more and I don't have the singing voice anymore. She's got it. <laughs> she's really good. And, uh, uh, This has been your episode of Grappling with Canada. This episode was written, researched, produced, and recorded by me, Andy the Taxman. You can find Grappling with Canada on all major podcasting platforms. Please make sure to rate and review five stars where available. You can also find Grappling with Canada on all major social media platforms. Just search Grappling with Canada on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. If you are willing and able to financially support Grappling with Canada, you can find links to PayPal and buymeacoffee.com on the Linktree link in today's show notes. You can also find links to the Grappling with Canada merchandise store in the show notes for today's episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your friends and family. This is Andy the Taxman saying... Thank you very much for supporting and listening to this program. Take care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>